Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast. I am so happy you are here. Sometimes there is a topic which is just a massive gap in my own knowledge And this episode came about for exactly that reason. I realised that I knew embarrassingly little about the menopause, about the process, about being perimenopausal. I didn't know about the treatment options for menopause and I definitely didn't understand the impact that it can have on women and the long, long, long list of symptoms So I wondered if some of you might feel the same and I decided to do a episode on it and I have got the best guest ever to talk about this subject. Dr Louise Newson is a GP and a menopause specialist. Her first book, The Menopause Manual, was an instant bestseller. She's also the founder of the not-for-profit company Newson Health Research and Education and she created the award-winning totally free Balance Menopause app and she's busy. She also founded the Menopause Charity. Many of you might know of Louise and her work from the documentary with Davina McCall. She's also been on tons of TV talking about this really important and yet massively undervalued topic. So in this episode, you are going to learn how to know if you might be perimenopausal. And this was a massive light bulb for me personally. We also talk a lot about HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy. And Louise busts a lot of the myths about it. And we talk about the link to breast cancer, which I know is a big concern for many people about HRT. We also talk about education and why has the menopause, given that 100% or 50% of the whole population will go through it, why has it been such a taboo, untalked about subject for so long and what can we do about it? Louise also shares where you can go to get support and any action that you might need to take in your own life around menopause. So I loved this episode. I feel so much more empowered and knowledgeable than before speaking to Louise, which is always my objective whenever I speak to anyone on the podcast. Please do share it. As you'll hear, there's just not enough conversation and resources about this. So please do share this episode with someone if you think it might be helpful. I hope you really enjoy it. Here it is. So Dr. Louise, I am so honoured to have some of your time this morning. You just must have so many people wanting to speak to you and you must be in such high demand. So thank you for coming on Motherkind. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's very good. I've just learned so much from reading your book and your content. And I have to say, my knowledge was not good on this subject. As I was reading your book, I was getting increasingly angry at 
how can this be something, the menopause and perimenopause, something that 100% of half the population go through, and yet it feels like just a huge gap in a lot of knowledge. I've heard you call it before a global health crisis. Was it from that place of anger and activism almost that you came to this work or was it your own experience? How did you come to be doing it? Yeah, really good question, actually. There's a combination of things, really. Most menopause specialists are gynecologists and I'm not a gynecologist. I am a physician. So I've come from a background of hospital medicine where I've been very interested in diseases, but then also very interested in prevention of diseases. You know, wouldn't it be great to keep as many people as possible away from healthcare systems and away from hospitals? And then I went into general practice where I learned, this sounds really awful, but I learned a lot more how to care for people and how to allow every patient to be an individual actually because it's very much in hospital this was don't forget in the 90s and early 2000s so a long time ago medicine has changed a lot but it was very much asthma attack in bed six heart attack in bed seven yes they'd have a name but it would be all about the disease all about which drugs to give them and then when I started in general practice my trainer at the time said Louise you're going to be terrible as a GP because you've come from a hospital background and you know what it's like when someone says you're going to be terrible you're immediately going to be good at it and I thought yeah actually I didn't ask that asthma attack in bed whatever whether they had any dogs or cats that could have triggered their asthma were they worried at home who was looking after them when I sent them home from hospital were they going were they going to be looked after by anyone who was going to cook their meals and just little basic things actually make a real difference or you know were you scared when you were having an asthma attack and couldn't breathe and you had oxygen at the ambulance none of that crossed my mind because no one had taught me to think like that and so general practice is a really great place to actually really get to know patients, but also get to know what their worries, their concerns are, and also what they want to get out of the consultation. It's all very well me thinking, well, they need this drug and that drug because it's going to make them live longer and not have a heart attack or whatever. But actually, what are they worried about? What did they want out of their lives as well? And so much in life is about a choice. So I learned a lot about people and about consulting. But also, I have always been interested in the menopause because there's very few things in medicine that can be transformational. And when I say that, it can help people feel better, but it can also invest in their future health. And we've all learned about statins and blood pressure lowering treatments and various other treatments, but actually HRT ticks so many boxes. But I would very much in general practice treat people who came through with obvious symptoms and I would treat them. And then three months later, I would have this transformation experience where they felt so much better. But I always thought I could be doing more. And actually, this was before the NICE guidance came out. So there's a lot of opposition to HRT. And a lot of other healthcare practitioners would say to me, Louise, this is dangerous what you're doing. You cannot be giving HRT. And I'm like, well, hang on, I've read the data. I've read the trials. I know the evidence. And actually, the woman's there telling me she wants it. So let's be grown up about this. So that was very antagonistic. And I found that really difficult until the NICE guidance came out in 2015. And then I thought, well, I want to do more because I'm now of a perimenopausal age. I didn't realize at the time I was experiencing symptoms, but a lot of my friends were experiencing symptoms, were telling me they were getting antidepressants. And I just thought, what on earth? I've never given antidepressants because they don't work for the low mood associated with the menopause or perimenopause. 
So I did some training to become a specialist and then I couldn't get a job in the NHS because they don't exist. They didn't then and they still don't really now running a menopause clinic. So I just set up in a local hospital one day a week to see some of my friends. But then I've been a medical writer for the last 20 odd years. So I set up my website, Menopause Doctor, which is now, as you know, balance-menopause.com. And people were starting to empower themselves. And then people would come from all over the country. And that's when I got really gobby about it really because I listen to these stories and I still do all the time from women who are giving up their jobs their partners have left them often they're in crisis and they've been back and forth trying to get help for the last I wish I could say last year but it's usually the last 5 10 15 sometimes 20 years and then three months later they come back and they're different women and a lot of them actually are very sad because they feel cheated they feel like they've lost out on what could be the best years of their life, their best career lit years or their best family years. And this is just wrong. And then I'm also thinking about how much these women have drained the economy, the economy in the respect that they're not working, but also the health economy and the fact that they're going back and forth to GPs, but also to secondary care providers for investigations for unnecessary treatments. So, yeah, and the more stories I hear, not just in my clinic, but on social media and just in general, I just like you said at the beginning, I feel really sad and really distressed about it. There's so much I want to unpack with you. But I wonder if we start, because embarrassingly, before I read your book, I didn't even know the difference between menopause and perimenopausal. I sort of thought that perimenopausal was when you might be leading up to the menopause. I didn't know the definition of menopause. Can we start right at the basics? And then I definitely want to get into HRT and treatment and all the rest. Yeah, absolutely. So the menopause, if you just break down the word, menopausal cycle, so women's periods, pauses, stop. And what happens for most of us is that as we get older, the number of eggs we're born with in our ovaries is a definitive number. And so the hormones associated with our ovaries and egg function just decline and they usually just gradually decline and then stop and that's our menopause because our periods stop officially you have to be a year since your last period before you can be menopausal so most of us that occurs around the age of 51 but some women it occurs earlier just naturally because they have less eggs but some women they have their ovaries damaged so for example if they have certain drugs or they have radiotherapy or some women have their ovaries removed in an operation and therefore they will be menopausal straight away and then the perimenopause peri just means around the time of so hormones don't suddenly stop unless obviously your ovaries are taken out and so when they decline they decline in a bit of a haphazard way but when they start to decline women often experience menopausal symptoms so the perimenopause is just this transition period if you like where women start to experience menopausal symptoms the hormone levels are declining it can last often for several years sometimes a decade or so and and the hardest thing about the perimenopause and menopause is there's no single diagnostic test. You can't go into a clinic or go to a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacy and say, I want to be tested for the perimenopause or menopause. We have to pick it up ourselves, usually as women, with some help sometimes of a healthcare professional. And so a lot of women are being misdiagnosed because they've got 
migraines or they've got muscle and joint pains thinking it's arthritis or they've got palpitations thinking they've got heart disease they've got low mood and anxiety think they have a mental health problem they have urinary symptoms think they've got recurrent urinary tract infections they've got dry skin they think they've got eczema they've got dry eyes they think they've got Sjogren's syndrome they've got burning mouth they go to the dentist you know it just goes on and on and on and the list goes on and on and often people aren't picking up the pieces cardiologists aren't trained in menopause they don't know how to prescribe hrt if they have a 45 year old woman with palpitations they'll make sure there's nothing structurally wrong with the heart of course that's very important but they won't say to the woman oh what are your periods like you know maybe you'll benefit from hrt so you can see women are being just lost all the time a lot of the work i do is about trying to improve education i've got a not-for-profit company helping with education but actually it's about empowering women so that when we have our palpitations we can say to the doctor do you know what this has come on since my period started changing I think I'm perimenopausal I really want to talk to you about treatment because I've got the next however many decades ahead of me where I really want to sort my hormones out yeah because you hear just so many stories don't you of people going to their GP I guess it's not the doctor's fault I guess most doctors most GPs are there because they want to help but totally. my understanding that they're not taught currently, I'm guessing you're fighting to change that, but then you're not taught about the menopause. So how are doctors supposed to know and guess to the level of detail to keep up with the changes in the research we're going to talk about with HRT? Yeah, and it, it is hard. I mean, I had no formal training as an undergraduate, a postgraduate, none of the specialties I did. And it hasn't really changed. There is some move. I'm working with some universities such as Cambridge University to improve the training. And Traditionally, it's sort of fallen to the laps of gynecologists. And, you know, I think about this a lot, actually. Gynecologists deal with problems of bleeding. They deal with problems, obviously, in the reproductive tract. But if I had diabetes, which is a pancreas problem, I wouldn't go and see a pancreatic surgeon. I would go and see an endocrinologist or my GP. If I had an underactive thyroid gland, I wouldn't go and see a neck surgeon who would remove my thyroid if I had problems. I would go and see an endocrinologist or a GP. So if my ovaries aren't working, I don't know why I should go and see a gynecologist. I should go and see either an endocrinologist or really a GP, actually, because it's so important. And like you say, it's not really a specialist area because it affects 100% of women. So it's all very well, you know, if you had a really weird condition, And you came to see me as a GP and I might say, well, Zoe, actually, I don't really know about this weird condition where you've grown a third arm because only one in three million people do that. But my colleague in a local hospital will know someone who can help and I'll give you help. Whereas actually, I think as a GP, if I say, you know what, I've had no training and I don't know anything about the menopause that affects half my population. I think that's really bad. You know, if I said to you, I know nothing about high blood pressure and I'm a GP, you probably quite rightly would think, well, what sort of doctor is she? And blood pressure, high blood pressure doesn't affect 50% of the population. (laughs) So, So we've got to change these excuses, really. What we do have to do is think, right, come on, let's get trained. And actually... The training program that we released about six months or so ago, we've had 18,000 downloads of it. And it's an education program called Confidence in the Menopause. And there's a lot of people, especially young junior doctors, students and nurses and pharmacists who are really giving us some amazing feedback to say, thank you. This is incredible. I wish I'd known this before. So it's not due to apathy. It's not due to not wanting to know. It's just not having those tools and resources. And I think people have been so scared of HRT that they thought, well, what's the point of training in the menopause? Because we haven't got a treatment option for them. 
but things have obviously changed and improved. So we need to just crack on and make sure that women can receive the help they deserve. Yeah, it's hard not to think if it was the other way around and 100% of men were going through this, that things might be slightly different. It's very hard not to blame patriarchy. But as you say, it is so important, that education piece. Something that blew my mind that you have helped me understand is, as you say, the fear around HRT came from this link to breast cancer. But I've heard you speaking about actually what happened with that original study. Can you talk to that? Because I think that is just so helpful. And then maybe we'll link on to talk about the benefits of HRT and how it can help. Actually, most people, if you say to them, what are you worried about with HRT? Or why aren't you taking HRT? I think 99% will be because of this breast cancer risk. And we've been fueled this information for the last 20 years or so. So in the 80s and 90s, when I was training and a junior doctor, we'd give HRT out really very easily to lots of people, not a problem. And then the study came out, or the results of the study came out in 2002. It was called the Women's Health Initiative Study, the WHI study. It was a billion dollar study, so lots and lots of money. And what they wanted to do was to see if HRT had other benefits to older women, because they knew that it was good for younger women, women who are perimenopausal or menopausal. So they thought, right, let's give it to older women. And It was a weirdly set up study because the average age in this study of women was 64. So that was starting HRT, which you can start HRT at any age, but it was older than most people start when they're in their 40s or 50s. And a lot of the women in the study were obese and a lot of them had had heart disease, like a heart attack before. So they weren't fit, healthy women, if you see what I mean. And then they gave a type of HRT we just don't prescribe anymore. It was a tablet estrogen, which has a small risk of clot, and an older type of progesterone, which has a small risk of clot and heart attack with it. And then when they were looking at the data through the study, they decided to stop it early, I think partly because they were trying to justify the huge amounts of money that they spent, but they saw that maybe there was a small increased risk in breast cancer, but they didn't evaluate the study properly. They just pulled the plug, said to the papers, increased risk of breast cancer with HRT. Some of the investigators tried to stop this press release and stop the medical press release. And they said, it's too late. It's already been printed. And they said, this is the biggest travesty to women's health that will ever happen. It's going to take decades to reverse. They said, oh, well, tough. And if you look at some of the camera footage and the media footage from that time, you know, there's bleeding experts sitting on people's sofas saying, HLT, dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Then what they didn't really do is say, Actually, not all types of HRT were associated with this risk. And they also never spoke about the benefits. So they never said, oh, actually, but when women started taking it when they were a bit younger, they reduced their risk of a heart attack. They reduced their risk of osteoporosis. They reduced their risk of dementia and diabetes. Nothing about the benefits. And then actually, we've now got 20-year follow-up from this data. And it shows that women taking any type of HRT have a lower risk of dying from breast cancer and a lower risk of dying from all causes, including other cancers as well. So then it's again about patient choice. You know, do you want something that's going to reduce your risk of dying with a risk that it might or might not, because it is not statistically significant, increase your risk of a diagnosis of breast cancer, bearing in mind one in seven women will get breast cancer regardless of taking HRT or not. 
So it's just been such a disaster for women to be fed this information, but not just for women, for the media. How hard is it for journalists to pick up on this? And then for healthcare professionals, so doctors who qualified, who are younger than me, who qualified around this time, around 2002, were just told, do not prescribe HRT, get everyone off HRT, it's dangerous. And then there was another study that came out two years ago now, What they did is they pulled all the data together. It was published in The Lancet and they showed all the published and unpublished data. Now, there's a reason why things are not published, normally because they're not very good studies. They pulled everything together, looked at this WHI data again and said, ah, the risks of breast cancer are even higher than we thought. So we need to reduce the amount of women on HRT. We need to reduce the dose, make sure they only have it for a short period of time. And that warning was sent to all GPs, all women on HRT. But when you look at that article in The Lancet, again, they were looking at older types of HRT. So not the type that we prescribe anyway. But there was not one sentence in this article about the benefits of HRT or about patient choice. It's almost like we've just been funneled into this, just carry on without your hormones, see how you get on, without anyone looking at the bigger picture of how health is being affected negatively with the lack of hormones that exist in so many women. It's just fascinating, isn't it? And can you talk to HRT as hormone replacement therapy? Mm. And there's lots of different types, aren't there? Can you talk a bit to that? Because I didn't know any of this and I now understand that one of them comes from a yam which also blew my mind is that right that it's yeah so HRT is only three letters and actually we need to change it really because women who start it when they're perimenopausal we actually just top up their missing hormones so it's actually just a hormone treatment as opposed to replacement treatment There are different hormones. The most important one probably in the body for women is estrogen because we have cells that respond to estrogen all over our bodies. But there's progesterone as well and testosterone, actually. Our ovaries produce about three times more testosterone than estrogen before the menopause. So with HRT, there are different ways of giving it. So we now usually give this body identical hormones. So it's the same structure as the hormones we produce ourselves. If you look down the microscope, it's the same. And as you say, they're all derived from the yam plant. So they're not from pregnant horses urine. They're very safe, very natural. And we give the estrogen and the testosterone through the skin. So it goes straight through the skin into the bloodstream. So it doesn't have to be digested or metabolized. Whereas these old types of HRT was very different. They had more risks. So there's no risk of stroke or clot with them. We use a natural progesterone. It is an oral capsule, but again, it's very safe. Or some people have a marina coil, which is an older type of progestogen, but it's a very low dose. And so that way you can change the dose according to somebody's symptoms and it can really be a bit more tailor-made. And these products, the estrogen and progesterone are available on the NHS. So they're not something you have to get from a fancy private clinic. And that's something I didn't understand either, that actually, and what you do in your clinic is that every way that someone has prescribed HRT should be tailored and bespoke. I mean, the NICE guidance, the National Institute of Health and Care guidelines, when they came out in 2015, they talk about individualised care. And actually, anyone should have individualised care, whether they've got a headache, a sore tooth or raised blood pressure. Most times we sort of tweak and tailor treatments according to symptoms and and clinical response. And so that's the same really with HRT. And it's like the contraceptive pill. Obviously, there's loads of different ones and it's finding the right ones for women and it's finding the right dose. And 
It's important to have the right dose of estrogen because if a woman's dose of estrogen is too low, then there's a risk that she's still got inflammation in her body, still got future disease risk, because that's the problem without estrogen in the menopause. It's not just symptoms, it's future health. So this increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, dementia, and so forth. I've heard you talk about this a lot, that the sort of transformation, and you mentioned it earlier, because you will often see women who are on the brink of divorce. And you yourself said that you probably wouldn't be doing the work. Mm. Is it 10% of women give up or consider? It's probably more, actually, probably more like 20%. But actually, we did a survey of nearly 5,000 women, and we found that half of them answered actually had left their job early or taken early retirement. So it's probably higher than we think, because a lot of women, like I did for a few months, aren't recognising that their symptoms are related. And... You know, it's one thing having a physical symptom like a palpitation or a sweat. There's another thing when your brain doesn't work. And it's really scary, actually. So I was writing content for my website. I've got three children. I was trying to juggle everything. And I just thought, oh, I'm just pushing myself too hard. It was like thinking through treacle. Really difficult to think, really difficult to concentrate. Just had no stamina. Just like that whole... Oh, I've been drugged a bit like in, sometimes in pregnancy where you, everything is just like an effort. And I just thought this is awful. And then you add in poor concentration, poor memory, and also a vile temper <laughs> that comes in every so often. You know, you can see why your loved ones don't want to have anything to do with you. But also, you know, I would have been dangerous to have been continuing as a doctor. I was quite emotionally labile. I remember something happened with a patient and you know, normally I would have just dealt with it. I'm catastrophized and found it really distressing. And it's really difficult. And I was only working one day a week as a GP because I've always done other jobs on other days. It wasn't an option for me to reduce my hours. And I don't think anyone should reduce their hours because of the menopause if they've not received health or treatment. I think having firsthand experience has made me feel more more cross but more determined to help more women because I really struggled to receive the right dose and type of HRT and that's me as a menopause specialist and I speak English don't I I can read information so how would it be if I'm in a really deprived area and English isn't my first language and I have no access to the internet this is why it's such a travesty for women isn't it that age is such a vulnerable time for women particularly mothers it's often a time when our children are kind of moving away I think it's just such a vulnerable time it is really difficult and such a travesty yeah you know having teenage children is really difficult having younger children is hard but it honestly if my children could be young again I could just pop them up and put them in the car how easy would that be you know you've got these other challenges going on and you know they've got challenges in their own brains and their own development and their own identity And then you're losing your identity and it's not their fault, but you can't remember what they're telling them. They're telling you that they're going to a party and you're saying, no, you can't go out. We're doing something else. Mommy, I've told you this so many times. Why aren't you listening to me? I thought I was listening. No, you're not remembering, you know, and it's like, and where's my clean uniform? Oh, I forgot to do the washing. It's these things and it really affects children. It really affects them. And I do worry because I do worry about domestic abuse and I know it increases during the perimenopausal menopause and you think about these children who are being looked after often not by their mothers but maybe their aunties or their grannies and how many of those are menopausal and 
a lot of my friends or my children's friends have actually thanked me when they've come round to the house to say, oh, Louise, thanks ever so much because you've seen my mum or my mum's read your book and she's so much better now. And that's lovely, but it's just the tip of the iceberg that I'm helping, really. It's the ones under the water I worry about. You know, it's easy for us as educated white women in some way to access this. As you so rightly point out, there is a whole other raft of society who you say don't have access to the internet. And yeah, it's just mind blowing the depth of the problem, right? Did you feel like that when you started to scratch the surface? Were you like, oh my gosh, what have I taken on? Because this feels huge. Yeah. You know, I never wanted to be this sort of voice. I've got complete imposter syndrome. I have always worked part-time because I want to be with my children. And now I'm working just the most ridiculous hours, but I spent a lot of time trying to think who can I reach who's the most disadvantaged. So I've been working with some cancer charities because women who have cancer are really neglected. But then I've been working with an HIV charity Sophia Forum because women with HIV are less likely to get treatment, more likely to have symptoms. I've been working with young people who've had cancer because those people are really neglected. But then I've also been thinking about women who don't have English as a first language, women from low socioeconomic backgrounds, because we know those women are less likely to be given HRT. But then also every group of women has got a story and a voice. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, there's nobody who can come and tell me, yeah, do you know what? My menopause means really well looked after. So as much as I pick up one stone, there's another one and another one and people. And, you know, we're doing a lot of work with mental health because we see and speak to a lot of women who have suicidal thoughts. And the suicide rate in women between the ages of 40 and 50 is seven times higher. And I don't think that's a coincidence. That's the time when hormones reduce. But there's nobody looking at this in research. Suicide prevention are not looking at this. For me, it's a priority because these are deaths that do not need to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, I was just thinking, you're so right to pick up on the generational impact of all this. Because, of course, as women, and appreciate not every woman is a mother, but those who are mothers, you know, when we struggle, the whole family struggles. So there's just a ripple effect across the whole of society. Can you help me understand, because I don't understand this, what's the link between the drop in hormones and the mental health side, the suicide, as you were talking about? And esteem and confidence. How does that interact? I don't well, we've got receptors in cells in our brains that respond to both estrogen and testosterone. And so obviously our brain is very complicated and there's lots of different areas of our brain. But if you're hungover or you're really hungry or really tired, your brain just doesn't function properly. You know, it's that awful, you know, if any of you been up with children and it's this awful torture where you just feel sick almost, you're so tired. Well, it's a bit like that. If you don't have hormones, your brain cannot function properly. For some women, they don't notice this at all. For some women, they just feel a bit more tired. But it depends on the area of the brain that's most affected. But for a lot of people, they get very intrusive, very negative thoughts that really scare them. You know, I've spoken to, I think, 14 suicidal women in the last week, and they're really scared of what's going on. And they really don't want to run out in front of a bus, but they can't live with these thoughts. And they look at their children, they look at their family, but it's really scary. And when you say to them, when did all this start? They said, well, 
when my period stopped or a lady I spoke to recently who was sectioned to a psychiatric hospital said, I phoned my husband up when I was in the recovery room after having my ovaries removed. And I said, oh my gosh, something really awful's happened to me. I'm really scared about my brain. And then she tried to kill herself and was sectioned to a psychiatric hospital. Women are very intuitive often. And I'm not here saying that every suicidal person has a hormone problem. And I'm not also saying that every suicidal woman, it will all be fixed by hormones. Often these women need psychiatric help. Of course they do. But often the missing piece is hormones. And I can say that with confidence because over the last five years, I have seen and spoken to so many women who are suicidal and after three, six months of getting the right dose and type of HRT, they feel a lot better. So it's definitely there for some women. I'm not saying for all women, but it's definitely there. And we're doing some work with the Maudsley Hospital in London because it's really important that psychiatrists can pick this up. It's really important that women can pick it up, but we're also doing a big piece. We've just launched an area on the balance-menopause.com website for partners We're working with someone whose wife sadly did die. She took her life and she was perimenopausal. And so we're listening to him because he wanted to get help. She knew it was probably her hormones. He did, but how does he get help? She's already under a psychiatrist. She's under her GP. She was under a crisis team. He wanted information. So it's finding areas that they can help, tools that will help them as well. So we're doing that piece of work. And then we're also working on for children as well, because, you know, If your mother, as you say, isn't holding it together at home, it's a very scary place for children as well. I feel so many conflicting emotions. I feel so deeply sad also for the decades of women that have Mm. gone before us. And I feel just deeply sad that this hasn't... It's 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 really level as it should have been, and I also feel hopeful. I also feel incredibly hopeful. I think yeah, I think it it takes a lot. I mean, lots of people don't want to listen to me, or don't listen to me, or ignore me, or tell me off. But actually, there's a big body of not just women, but other people who are saying the same stories, who are really going to make a change. So I think things are going to get better. I feel the last six to 12 months has been a sort of change actually which is great because none of my work is done in isolation it looks like I'm all over doing everything but of course I'm not I have a massive team of people who really trust and believe me and not just believe me they believe the literature they look at the evidence and they listen to stories as well and so I think it's a great time actually also for women. I do think I would have got a lot more achieved if I was a male gynecologist rather than a female GP. But I think it's a great time for women in general to be listened to. And I do think we can't be ignored anymore. (laughs) So it's quite an exciting time. I'd love to have a crystal ball and see what it's like for menopausal women in five or even 10 years time. What would you like to see? I'd like to see that every woman can have her own hormones back if that's what she wants and every woman is listened to and every woman receives the treatment that she wants so I'm not here saying every woman has to take HRT of course I'm not I'm here saying that if you want it you should be able to have it because it's safe and it produces or provides more benefits than risks and actually that will make a massive improvement to economy in a global scale so you know health will improve economy will improve what are the two most important things in life really is our health and wealth I suppose 
wouldn't it be amazing if this was taught in schools? It's just fascinating how much we're taught about reproduction and mm. pregnancy, and yet not every woman will, you know, choose to reproduce. And yet this is something that affects, you know, I went to a girls' school. We were just talking about it because yeah. you're in an area that I grew up. In my girls' school, this wasn't even mentioned. No. That'd be amazing. No, I went to an all-girls boarding school and I remember learning how to put on a condom on a banana. (laughs) Yeah, that's great, but not everyone goes near a penis or uses contraception. And I think, you know, I've learned a lot from my mother, actually. She's a very inspirational person and she actually didn't know, actually. She was experiencing some symptoms in the early 80s and my father had sadly died in 1979 and she had three children to look after, a difficult life was trying to work as a teacher and just couldn't concentrate went to see her GP who I wish I could thank that GP I don't even know how to get hold of her and she said to my mum oh Mrs Newton you'll be menopausal take this tablet of HRT my mum had no idea what the menopause was she had no idea what HRT was but medicine then was very paternalistic she took a green piece of paper from the doctors went to the chemist got these tablets and she just felt better so she's carried on taking them for decades and people have tried to take her off them and she hasn't and she's very independent she's very mentally and physically good and so I look at her and think goodness it would have been very different as she's been given antidepressants all that time ago so she's one of the lucky ones but there's a lot of people out there who have been told to stop their HRT or been denied it so hopefully that will change. Why would someone be told to stop it would you call it a medication is this something that we can take long term or are there risks to that or yeah, is it so people have always like I said at the beginning worried about this whole breast cancer risk but actually the body identical hormones have never been shown to have a statistically significant or any increased risk actually of breast cancer estrogen on its own has been shown to be associated with a lower risk of breast cancer so in the past because people were worried about breast cancer they just said oh, you can just have the lowest, lowest, shortest length of time, try and stop it after five or 10 years. Whereas actually, if you common sense will just tell you, well, it's just another hormone. Would I stop thyroxine after five, 10 years? Of course I wouldn't. Would I stop insulin? Of course not. So why would you stop a hormone that has really good health benefits? You know, even if you just look one of the health benefits, so heart disease, the risk of a heart attack reduces by about 50%. Heart attacks, and dementia are the commonest causes of death in women. So we have something that reduces risk of both and reduces risk of osteoporosis, diabetes, or cause mortality, actually. So it is really a bit of a no-brainer for the majority of us to take it, but actually only 12% of women take it. And that's not because 12% of women want it. It's just because that's all that's being prescribed at the moment. What's the root cause of that, would you say? Is it GP understanding? It's not an expensive drug, is it? So it's not... No, it's not expensive at all and it has so many potential cost savings. I think it's both really. There's been fear by women and fear and misunderstanding by healthcare professionals. And so what I'm trying to do in my own little way really is... We've founded the Balance app, which is a free app. So women can be empowered with evidence-based information. They can create a health report, which they can take to their GP or healthcare professional. And then, like I say, we've created this free educational program so that healthcare professionals can get confidence. It's all evidence-based, lots of information, lots of lectures and consultations they can watch. And so then hopefully the dots will be joined So if you've got an empowered patient and an educated healthcare professional, then there's very few excuses really not to give them the right treatment. And is there anyone who shouldn't take HRT? 
there's no one that you can ever say no to for anything in medicine. There might be some people that might have increased risk. So those are usually women who've had an estrogen receptor positive cancer. But just having an estrogen receptor in a cancer doesn't mean it's been caused by estrogen or it doesn't actually mean that estrogen is necessarily bad. Again, we haven't got the evidence. There are some studies that show that women who take HRT after a diagnosis of an estrogen receptor positive cancer do better. There's some evidence that they do worse, but the numbers are so small. When numbers are small, you can't make sweeping recommendations based on that scanty evidence. So again, then it's looking at individuals. So there are some women who are really, really crippled. And I don't use cripple in a flippant way. They are paralyzed almost with their symptoms. They can't function. And so they want to take HRT, even though they've got a history of breast cancer in the past. There are others who are so scared with this uncertainty, they never want a hormone in their life. And that's fine. I respect both of those. And it's about choice then and sharing that uncertainty. And we've written a booklet on the Balance website specifically for women who've had breast cancer, who are menopausal. And this week I've released a podcast talking to a urologist called Steve Payne, whose wife had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and was really struggling with her aromatase inhibitor treatment. And he talks very eloquently about the choices that they both made regarding her treatment. And it's great because he's a doctor and he's the partner of someone who's been suffering So we talk a lot about the uncertainty and he's helped actually write a leaflet again on the Balance website about this uncertainty. So there's lots of tools, but I don't think anyone should be ever told no, because nothing in medicine is black and white. Just thinking about symptoms again, because this is something that I've been thinking of. Like I have a few symptoms and I'm wondering, is there a sort of critical mass of symptoms that you need to have in order to access HRT or go to your GP? Or is it like if you've got a few, like for me, it would be lack of concentration and memory to the point where I'm like, is it ADHD, the way that my brain is scattered, but it's Mm. recent. Do you need to have sort of 10, 12 on? I know you've got an incredible checklist on the website. Yeah, no, there isn't There isn't a number actually. And it's often quite hard to know. Like if someone has had their ovaries removed or their periods have stopped and then their symptoms started, it's very clear, isn't it? If someone's perimenopausal, it's very difficult because you don't know how much is related. So often what we do do is give people some HRT for three months because we're just topping up, give them a low dose and see how they feel. If after three months they start to go, yeah, do you know what? I feel so much better. I really do. I feel great. Then it's very much likely related to their hormones. If they say, you know, I still feel the same, then it's unlikely to. But because HRT is so safe, it's not really a big problem or harm with doing that. Okay, so would you encourage sort of everyone listening to this to go and look at the checklist, which is just brilliant, or the book or all the resources that you have? And if they have any concerns at all, go to their GP, but armed with some of that information. Yeah. Knowing what's about the GP might not, might be, might be lucky, but might not be on the same page. Yeah, I think so. I think it's really important to talk about the NICE menopause guidance. A lot of GPs are aware of what I'm doing. Some of them just think, well, that's just one doctor's opinion. But if you talk about NICE, they're they're government-endorsed guidelines. And also in June of this year, in 2021, there was some shared decision-making guidance that came out from NICE as well. And they're worth having a little look at because actually... 
it is about sharing the decision. And if, for example, I was a doctor that didn't know much about HRT and thought it was really awful, and you were my patient and came to me and said, look, I really want it, then I have to respect the decision that you're making. You're a consenting adult. You've done your homework. You're aware there might be some risks. Who knows? But there's certainly lots of benefits. So I can't refuse you. And this is where the shared decision-making is so important, especially with HRT prescribing. So I think if a woman's being pushed back, they should talk about those two nice guidelines, the menopause ones and the shared decision-making guidance. That's really useful. And to just check out the resources Mm. website which is just incredible and the app of course which is brilliant what's next what's your sort of big vision obviously you had the incredible documentary with Divina which was just incredible is there a tv show in plan what else (laughs) there's another Divina program coming out in a few months I'm, I'm not involved in that I'm working with the NHS with NHS England with their National Menopause Programme. And so obviously this is a massive piece of work to try and enable every person to access the right treatment and help and support. So doing that, I've launched the Menopause Charity, which is a very, very small charity at the moment, but I really, really want to be able to have a helpline on it so people can phone up and get help so obviously that's a huge piece of work with meeting money so once we can have some more donations that's really really pressing on my mind so we want to develop the app more I want to develop the education program more we're starting doing a bit of research but I want to do a lot of research and menopause because it's been neglected for the last 20 years so there's lots going on it's just crazy when you say that, you know, the research has been neglected for 20 years and yet hundred percent of half the population. So that, well, I mean, just thank you for all the work that you're. Oh, thank you. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Gift of not suffering, actually. You know, there's lots of suffering in the world for so many reasons. I don't need to start even explaining why people suffer, but not suffering because of their lack of hormones. That's the most important thing, I think, would be really lovely. Wouldn't that be an amazing gift for everyone? So they just don't have to suffer in that way. Exactly. And you're so right. There is enough going on, isn't there? It is hard enough without also having to deal with some of those crippling, as you said, symptoms. Oh, thank you so much. I've absolutely loved it. It's been a joy to connect. And thank you for setting up in Stratford-Avon as well, a place very (laughs) close to my heart. (laughs) Oh, thank you. No, it's been a great time. And thanks for interviewing me. It's been brilliant. Oh, you're welcome. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, 
and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.